0: So the first part there that I think is important is we believe that the law is of God is eternal, eternal and unchangeable, and that is because it rests in the character of God. A, a few years ago, I was working at an assisted living, and a coworker and I had some gospel gospel conversations. And I was talking about the uh, appeal to the Old Testament law as to show what was right in a particular situation. And she immediately responded, Whoa, well, wait, we are not under that Old Testament law anymore. Jesus abolished that. We don't have to obey that anymore. Her response revealed an attitude of, disgust and suspicion of the Old Testament law. That's that old stuff and it really—it was really bad back then. I don't know how those people could stand it, but now we have Jesus. and uh, he, He's loving and he's not like back then. I think a good antidote to that would be to study or even memorize Psalm 119. But this is partly an attitude that I think is a modern attitude that everything old is, is outdated. It's generally people used to think like that, but we've gotten over that, and that's the past, and we do things better now. now. I want to ask the question, is that the right way to think about God's law? I don't believe it is, and I believe our confession affirms that there's a, a better way to think about God's law that it is good, and it is representative of God's eternal uh, relationship to uh, people. So we must ask, well, what is he referring to here about the law? And that uh, really the law is, in general, the appropriate response that uh, God's person and character deserves by all people. And then starting with God's command to Adam in the garden and continuing as a law written on their hearts before the Mosaic wall, it was set in stone on the mountain of God and will continue from the Decalogue given there, the Ten Commandments, and will continue accurately reveal a revelation of God's character and define all things that are right and good until the day of judgment. And Paul affirms this, this universal view that God's law is, is unchangeable in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, he talks about in his flow of thought in Romans that he wants to establish that all people are guilty before God. And that neither Jews nor Gentiles can excuse themselves. And yet, while the Jews had the moral law, had the the Mosaic law, the Gentiles and every person across this world still has a law that they are under. And that is the law of their conscience written on their hearts. Romans 2 verse 12 down through uh, verse 16 shows this. But it says, For we have, who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles, this is where he's talking about the uh, Gentiles relationship here, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, Mosaic law, it's clear that that's what he's talking about here with the law, they are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts accusing or excusing themselves. So there is a natural law And we see that in Romans chapter 1, that everyone, whether they have the Old Testament law or not, are condemned under. And we see that in nature, but yet, is it incongruous with the Old Testament law? Is there some kind of difference between the two? Can one stand apart from the other? And I would say no. I think Paul says here in verse 14, 13 and 14 that this Old Testament law or this uh, law on their hearts assumes the Old Testament law as an objective standard by which to judge and to verify that their conscience is not seared and that it is a law to them. So in any point uh, a person could say well you know my heart what's written on my heart might be different from what's written on your heart or what I think is right and wrong is different from what you say is right and wrong, but yet the moral law, the, the, the Decalogue is the ultimate standard for that. And regardless of that, there's, there's something, there's, there's one part of the law that all people will all um, at some point be able to say, yes, I, I get that from nature, I realize uh, that is uh, binding and I do not meet that. So this is a law unchangeable and universal. Then Paul uh, continues with that. um, But thinking about this, we also want to understand, is the Old Testament law done away with? As this young lady had told me there in that conversation... And the New Testament seems to me to be clear that is not essentially done away with or changed or stopped and now we have something different, but there's something consistent. And Jesus does this in two ways. First, by some, uh, his summation of the law in the great commandment in Matthew uh, 22, verse 36 through 40. On these two, the the love of your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, on these two depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, if he was saying that the Old Testament law was one thing, but that's done away with, now we just have these two essential things, then he wouldn't connect it back to the law and the prophets. In fact, he's saying the law and prophets actually rest on those two things. And we see in the Ten Commandments that those two things are essential there in the Ten Statements. That the first four relate to our relationship with God and the last six relate to our relationship with other people. Further, we see that those ten statements that Moses received on the mountain were in effect even before They were given there on the mountain of God that it was wrong for someone to kill and to shed blood even earlier in Genesis. And there was a Sabbath as we will see here in a moment even before the time of the Decalogue. And so we see each one of those existed before and during and will continue after. They are unchangeable. And so we see that, but also the second thing that Jesus does to establish this law, even in the New Testament, is that in Matthew 5, Jesus depends on the Ten Commandments for his reiteration of his commandments, his law, Jesus' commandments. And in Matthew 5, he he makes these statements like, you've heard, it was said, you shall love your neighbor, uh, you shall... Uh, But hate your enemy, and uh, Jesus says, but I say to you, if you, you, uh, uh, sorry I messed that up, (laughs) but even if you hate your enemy or your friend in your heart, that is uh, the same thing as murder in the the Decalogue, the uh, Sixth Commandment. And if he was trying to establish something new or different, he would actually not have said that he it, it, it goes back to that commandment. And he, and he does that um, in, in Matthew chapter 5. And also, if we say, well, that's just in that time right before Jesus' resurrection, the fulfillment, and uh, Pentecost, and the establishment of his church. But even, even James says uh, that... He reiterates the law there in chapter 2, saying that if you're guilty in one point, you're guilty of all. And this is after the New Testament. And I don't think that he's just talking to Jews. And so we see this is is really something we should take seriously. And then finally, I think it's important that Jesus said in uh, Matthew 5, in verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law, which is what my uh, co-worker was saying, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I my, told my co-worker that I believe that God is consistent. He's the same God of the Old Testament as in the New Testament. And uh, that there's not something essentially different about God. This uh, our confession continuing with that says that our inability to keep the law is not a problem with the law but with ourselves and we can see that clearly in Romans 7 where Paul talks about his struggle with the law and that it showed him what was right and he says in verse 16 but if I do the very thing I do not want to do I agree with the law confessing that the law is good and so we see a, a consistency there as well. We also see uh, that it is this connection here in this confession that of the law and the gospel. Those things balance and mesh together and are very essential. And there's a long history of thought on this, that this is very important and the importance of this is going back to the Gospel. And I think that's something I want to em- emphasize this morning because we are about the Gospel and we should be about reaching people with the Gospel. And Jesus said in His last command to His church uh, to make disciples and uh, teaching them everything that I've commanded. And lo, I'm with you always. And that goes back to what He's commanded there in the Gospels which then once again is founded on the Decalogue and the Old Testament law. And so, here he continues this, but then notice that he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And then we see in in 2 Timothy 3.15 how Paul encourages Timothy that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And he also says, um, uh, skipping down in Romans 7, that Paul himself exclaims that I would not have come to know sin except through the law. That's an easy scripture to remember, Romans 7, 7. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. In the context, law here is the Old Testament Jewish law. And so Paul is, is saying that it is vastly important for our salvation that we know the law so that we know our need for Christ. Without the law, we have no need for Jesus fulfilling it on our behalf. As Jesus said, I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it, this connects perfectly. And this is essential for what we do in evangelism and seeing people uh, to, to bring them to Christ and showing them their need in the law. And I think it's not wrong to, to show people the Ten Commandments and, and say, have you thought about how you compare to God's standard? And all people will have to admit that they do not meet or reach that standard, but all have sinned and fall short of God's glory seen in His standard. And so it is essential for that, but also finally in that part of the confession that it is the result and the end result of our our coming to Christ in Ephesians chapter 2 It says uh, that we are his workmanship in Ephesians 2.10 created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so we would walk in them. And in Romans 8 he continues to emphasize that what the law could not do because though it was God did sending his own son and he uh, giving that uh, fulfillment to us So that it is, the law might be fulfilled in us. And so the new believer now has the ability, unlike the unbeliever, to obey Christ's commandments. And we see that in Romans 3 as well uh, that for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But then in verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be, on the contrary, we establish the law. And I I think that uh, that shows that the end result uh, of our salvation is to follow Christ and His example and uh, to follow God's standard based on the Holy Spirit. Now, switching cogs to the second part of this confession of the Christian Sabbath. Uh, we will just go through this briefly, uh, and I'll skip my illustration there, but the confession states that we believe that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day, or Sabbath, and is to be kept sacred to religious purposes by abstaining from all secular labor and sinful recreation of "...by the devout observance of all the means of grace, both private and public, and by preparation for that rest which remains for the people of God." So the confession presents the position that there is still a day of Sabbath rest in the New Testament. But this day has been shifted from Saturday to Sunday. Now let's look at two biblical teachings on this truth to understand what is stated here in the confession. First is that the Sabbath has continued and ultimately is fulfilled in Christ, and then second, that the Christian Sabbath is on the Lord's Day, or the first day of the week. The first thing that Sabbath has continued is because it is a creation ordinance. It was instituted in Genesis at creation. And this means that it began on the seventh day of creation and is therefore... Timeless and not contingent upon a unique circumstances. Also, because it is part of the Decalogue, the Ten Sayings, sets it apart from the rest of the mosaic Law as a part uh, as the part that was binding before, during, and after the time of Israel. Jesus applies it generally. Mark two twenty-seven, saying the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. That giving kind of general man in general. And then in Hebrews 4, it affirms that it continues into the New Testament time. In verse 9, it says, So there, is, uh, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And this is ultimately uh, found by believing in and becoming a follower of Christ. And further, he says in chapter ten twenty five, the verse that we know well, Not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you, see the day, uh, as you see the day drawing near. So not forsaking that assembling of ourselves together. The second thing that is important here to understand is that the, the Lord's day or the first day of the week can be demonstrated by the New Testament example. The resurrection was on the first day of the week. Uh, now on the first day of the week, uh, they, Mary and Magdalene, came early to the tomb. That's stated in John 20, and verse 1. The very next Sunday, Jesus met with his disciples on the first day of the week. John 20, verse 19. And they met again a week later. John chapter 20, verse 26. The day of Pentecost happened also on the first day of the week. Acts 2. And we see repeated examples of the church meeting on the first day of the week. We see that in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2, where the collection was on the first day of the week. And then we see this unique statement in Revelation 1.10 of John mentioning, quote, the, on the day of the Lord, or the Lord's day. And this shows that there is the Lord's day in the New Testament that stands as a fulfillment of the Old Testament Sabbath and that is ultimately according to Hebrews chapter 4 fulfilled in Christ and we'll see the completion of that fulfillment in heaven when we go and be with Him one day. So I want to encourage you that the law of the Lord is good and I believe with all my heart that there's not one statement, or one word in this book that I have reason to be ashamed of. Rightly interpreted and understood, it is pure, holy, good, and just. And is something that I should look to, to understand God, as character, and the way of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You, Lord, for Your Word, for Your law that You gave to your people, and that was preserved by your people Israel. Lord, I thank you that we have it here today. And Lord, that we can learn from it and learn of your character, your holiness, your greatness. And Lord, by it we know our own sin and through it we know the necessity of Christ and His grace on our lives. And Lord, I pray that each one here would come to know that and come to stand on Your Word. And Lord, if anyone does not know You, Lord, that, that as they heard these commandments, Lord, that they would, they would come to know that they cannot keep these commandments on their own, that they need Christ's righteousness imputed on their behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.